Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mel Goodman, a former CIA analyst and author who examines the grim situation in Ukraine on the second anniversary of Russia's invasion and the need for all parties to enter into negotiations to end the war. Mike Ferner, National Director of Veterans for Peace, and Matthew Ho, Associate Director of the Eisenhower Media Network, who discussed their letter demanding President Biden stop sending U.S. weapons to Israel as a violation of U.S. and international law. And Chelsea Barnes of the group Appalachian Voices, who talks about new federal legislation being proposed to clean up zombie coal mines and address the environmental hazards posed to local communities. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In a challenge to India's nationalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi, tens of thousands of farmers from northern India are marching to the capital of New Delhi to demand crop price subsidies, relaunching a protest movement that succeeded in repealing market-based agricultural policies in 2021. To prevent the farmers from entering the capital, police are using tear gas, blocking roadways, and arresting some protesters. The government is determined to prevent a repeat of the 2021 protest, where tens of thousands of farmers camped outside the capital for over a year. Leaders of the Farmers March are demanding guaranteed crop prices, loan waivers, and a doubling of farmers' income. They are specifically calling for legislation that will guarantee minimum prices to extend beyond essential wheat and rice crops and include price supports for all farm produce. Protesters assert that farmers are facing a financial crisis and without fixed price supports, many more will be forced to sell their land. Opposition is building in many conservative fossil fuel-producing states against the new Biden administration rule that requires states to monitor methane emissions, a major pollutant contributing to the climate crisis. In two years, the new Environmental Protection Agency policy will require oil and gas-producing states to reduce methane emissions. Thus far, only Colorado and New Mexico have launched programs to regulate methane emissions, while oil states, including North Dakota and Wyoming, are gearing up to challenge the rule in court. When House Republicans held a hearing on the rule, they complained that the EPA regulation would impose excessive costs on industry and require massive amounts of data collection. Methane is a more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide and responsible for a quarter of all the warming across our planet. It also breaks down much faster in the atmosphere, meaning reducing methane emissions will have a more immediate impact than reducing carbon dioxide, which dissipates more slowly. The new EPA rule is expected to prevent 58 million tons of methane emissions by 2038, equal to the carbon emissions produced by the entire power sector in 2021. After its successful strike against America's big three automakers, the United Auto Workers Union is making progress in organizing thousands of non-union workers in conservative southern states. 
In linking the labor movement with the historic U.S. civil rights struggle, the UAW announced 30% of 4,000 non-union workers at a Hyundai truck manufacturing plant in Montgomery, Alabama, have pledged support for the union. Hyundai worker activists attempted a union organizing drive at the plant in 2016, but those efforts fizzled in the face of management intimidation. The UAW announced that more than 10,000 workers across 13 non-union plants have signed union cards since last November, when the union announced an ambitious goal to organize 150,000 auto workers. That's roughly the same number as are now covered under the Big Three contracts. In recent weeks, the UAW announced similar levels of worker support for unionizing at a Mercedes-Benz plant in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and at a Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. After the UAW went public about their union drive at Mercedes-Benz, Alabama's right-wing Republican Governor Kay Ivey wrote an op-ed vowing to bust the union. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. It's been nearly two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24, 2022, where both sides have suffered grievous losses. It's estimated that up to 120,000 Russian soldiers have been killed and some 180,000 wounded. Ukraine is reported to have lost 70,000 soldiers, with another 100 to 120,000 injured. Since the start of the war, more than 10,000 civilians including some 560 children have been killed, and over 18,500 have been injured. As Republicans in Congress continue to block President Biden's request for $60 billion in military aid for Ukraine, Ukraine's military announced their surrender of the key eastern city of Avdika to Russian forces on February 17th. The death of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny in a Siberian prison on February 16th has further increased tensions between Washington and Moscow. There are also growing fears about a possible future accident at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine, after the International Atomic Energy Agency reported their concern about military strikes, power cuts, and understaffing at the plant, the largest in Europe. Your reporter spoke with Melvin Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy a professor of government at Johns Hopkins University, an author and a former CIA analyst. Here he examines the grim situation in Ukraine and the need for the governments of Ukraine, the U.S., and Russia to enter into negotiations to end the war. I don't know where it's going to go from here because I don't think Ukraine, and I've been saying this for over a year now, uh, Ukraine cannot win this war. Uh, It's not Ukraine's war to win. And the problem is Putin can't afford to lose this war, and he'll throw as much manpower and as much weaponry and sacrifice as many soldiers as he needs to. Uh, And even though we have very limited information uh, in 
in terms of Russian losses. We have no information, really, officially. I haven't been able to get any official numbers on what Ukrainian fatalities and casualties are in this confrontation. But someone has to break this current Gordian knot over our arms, or Ukrainian is going is going to have to uh, reconfigure its objectives uh, in this war. I just don't think they can go on like this. They had three initial successes in the first year of the war when they turned back the Russians from Kiev and Kherson and Kharkov. But now, with this Russian breakthrough that we've seen, Russia really controls the Donetsk province. So when you think of how much territory the Russians held before the war started two years ago, if anything, they've gained ground. They hold about 20% of Ukrainian territory. And I don't see any possibility for Ukraine being able to regain any of that territory. They've had successes in the Black Sea, and they've opened up some corridors in the Black Sea. They've hit some ships uh, in the Black Sea that have threatened uh, Crimea to a certain extent, but they're not going to win back Crimea, and Putin is certainly not going to give back Crimea. Remember, that was very popular when he seized it in 2014. Even Alexei Navalny and Mikhail Gorbachev, for that matter, were approving of what uh, Putin had done. But Putin is on a, a mad course at this particular time, and there appears to be no way of stopping him. You know, sanctions aren't slowing him down. As long as he can continue to have good economic relations with uh, China and support from China and diplomatic cover at the U.N., and the expanded relations with Iran, and now even relying on North Korea for armament, uh, he can continue these uh, struggles. So what was for a while a war of attrition is now showing uh, Russia making some very serious moves that are going to put the Ukrainian military in a real, real quandary. They spread their forces too thin in the first place. American military officers who have been communicating regularly with their Ukrainian counterparts uh, we're not in favor of Zelensky's tactics. And, of course, the dispute between Zelensky uh, and his uh, commander, who he finally removed, shows you how bad the political situation is. Thank you for that, Mel. There's long been a concern by some that what's playing out in Ukraine in this deadly war is a proxy conflict between the U.S. and Russia. And there were certain statements by the United States, the Biden administration, that indicated the United States was seeking all-out victory against Russia here and would fight to the last man in Ukraine. Of course, that's not the whole picture. But I wanted to get your take on when is it time to sit at the negotiating table and understand that Ukraine militarily will likely be unable to take back the territory they lost since this conflict began two years ago and to reach some sort of settlement and stop the killing there. Well, I've been in favor of that for uh, nearly a year when I assessed that Ukraine had no way to win this war. Um, Ukraine is not only sacrificing its people, sacrifices its cities and its infrastructure. I think they're compromising their democracy. It's going to be very hard to conduct democratic reforms at a time they're engaged in this military struggle. So there's a lot more they have uh, to lose. The problem is I don't think any outsider can really deliver that uh, message. But I think at some point we need to sit down with Ukrainians. And also, you don't hear anyone say this, at some point we're going to have to sit down with the Russians because I think what's going to come out of this war at some point are security guarantees for both. And I know that sounds ludicrous right now, 
but Russia is facing a situation when this war does end, uh, virtually every country on its western border being a member of NATO. This is a strategic disaster for Russia, but it also creates problems for the United States in terms of a renewal of the, the Cold War that will make it very difficult to conduct the bilateral relations we need to conduct with Russia, particularly over arms control, and now this talk of this uh, new satellite weapon that will be deployed in space that could threaten communication satellites, not only of the United States, but of China and India as well, who are also dependent on satellite technology for sensitive communication. I think all of this is going to have to be discussed and will be part of an overall settlement if we could ever get Ukraine to realize that this, this war has to end. You know, we talk about ceasefire in the Middle East. We need a ceasefire on the Russian-Ukrainian front as well. It's just as dire, and in some ways, in terms of a proliferated and expanded war, maybe more dire. That was Melvin Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, professor of government at Johns Hopkins University, and former CIA analyst. Find links to Goodman's recent articles and related analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The situation for the 2.3 million residents of Gaza grows more desperate with each passing day, as the death toll of Palestinians reach more than 29,000, 70% of whom are women and children, and another 69,000 wounded. The United Nations World Food Program announced on February 20th that it was forced to suspend food aid deliveries to isolated northern Gaza due to the Israeli military's failure to ensure U.N. convoy safety. The agency warned that people are already dying from hunger-related causes. On February 20th, the Biden administration vetoed an Algerian-drafted U.N. Security Council resolution on the Israel-Gaza war blocking, for a third time, an international demand for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire as the U.S. pushed for an alternative resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire linked to the release of hostages held by Hamas. At the same time, world leaders are ratcheting up pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to abandon his plans for a ground offensive in the southern Gaza city of Rafah where some 1.5 million Palestinians have been told by Israel to seek safety. Your reporter spoke with Mike Ferner, National Director of Veterans for Peace, and Matthew Ho, Associate Director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Here they discuss a recent Veterans for Peace letter demanding President Biden stop sending weapons to Israel, declaring the transfer of these weapons is a violation of U.S. and international law. There are... Uh, at least six things that the Biden administration is uh, ign- either ignoring uh, their own directives or uh, violating uh, U.S. law or uh, international treaties that uh, we are bound to uphold, such as a conventional arms transfer policy. That's one of them. I'll just read down the six of them quickly. The Foreign Assistance Act, the Arms Export Control Act, the U.S. War Crimes Act, the Leahy Law, and the Genocide Convention Implementation Act. These are all things that are on the books, and the uh, enforcement problem uh, was stated really well by Ralph Nader, who uh, expounded on uh, our letter and explained some of it uh, in one of his recent columns. And the enforcement problem is 
that uh, private citizens can't bring action uh, against the State Department or any other governmental department uh, for not enforcing the law. Uh, That has to come from Congress. Well, we know what the political problem is. The administration, uh, at least at the top, uh, they're starting to get a lot of opposition from within their own uh, staff members. But from the top, they're 100% supportive of Israel, and Congress has yet to find any backbone to uh, do anything to make the administration uphold the law. So given that and the fact that private citizens can't bring legal action, I've been encouraging our members to take this opportunity to up their activity and uh, tell Congress, you know, enforce the law. And how should we be telling Congress? What I've specifically suggested is, of course, the old write your congressperson call, but participate in activities uh, that are going on all over the country. Get out in the street, uh, sit down in the streets and bridges, and just do everything possible to nonviolently bring business as usual to a halt until uh, this government starts to enforce the laws that it's supposed to abide by, uh, not even saying anything about the morality involved. Thank you, Mike, for that uh, good summary of the reasons why this letter was written. And Matthew, what would you like to add in terms of uh, the rationale for citing uh, human rights law in this country, both domestic law and international law, and really holding the Biden administration accountable for their supply of weapons to Israel as the carnage continues in Gaza. There, there are certainly moral arguments to be made, as well as strategic arguments to be made, why the United States should not be supporting uh, Israel's genocide of the Palestinian people. Uh, there are many arguments that can be made based upon the wisdom of doing such, whether this actually serves the interests of the United States, as well as the moral arguments of of committing such a a crime against humanity. But there's also the legal argument. And what this letter does that Veterans for Peace uh, sent to the State Department is make it clear that the United States government is in violation of its own laws. There's no uh, vagueness about this. Uh, It is very clear that the United States government is deliberately and overtly uh, violating its own federal laws uh, in terms of providing support to Israel as it commits uh, genocide against the Palestinian people. Uh, You have had both the International Court of Justice as well as a U.S. District Court affirm that there is a plausible risk of genocide occurring as well as just the, the, the vast volume of evidence that has been produced as well as the actual authoritative reporting coming from dozens of international organizations. So uh, the rationale behind this is to, one, do the right thing here as American citizens, as former veterans of the United States military, as uh, citizens of a democracy, it is our responsibility to ensure that our government is put on notice that it is violating its own law. The other aspect of this as well is to provide education, right? Provide information to people, Uh, you know, give people the information they need to do exactly what Mike was saying in terms of confronting their elected officials, whether they be elected officials at the federal level, at the state level, or at the local level, this type of information where it clearly demonstrates that, look, the federal government is violating its own laws here. What the Biden administration doing is illegal, very clear to see. 
that type of information, that type of public education, if you will, uh, we believe is necessary to ensure that uh, resistance against the U.S. support to Israel's genocide is as strong as it can be. That was Mike Ferner, National Director of Veterans for Peace, and Matthew Ho, Associate Director of the Eisenhower Media Network. Learn more about the Veterans for Peace letters sent to the Biden administration by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. There are nearly one million acres of abandoned coal mines across the U.S. that opened after 1977, which have not yet been reclaimed or cleaned up. Those mines are located in 30 states where coal mining has occurred or is being done, according to analysis by the Western Organization of Resource Councils. The land surrounding these coal mines are prone to landslides, and the water on site is often contaminated due to acid mine drainage. A coalition has come together to propose new legislation to deal with these so-called zombie mines. Advocates from across coal mining communities are supporting a federal policy platform that addresses and prevents unreclaimed zombie mines that have not been cleaned up by the responsible coal companies. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Chelsea Barnes, Director of Government Affairs and Strategy for the group Appalachian Voices, a nonprofit with offices throughout the southern Appalachians. Here she describes what defines a zombie mine and the environmental hazards local communities are exposed to addressed in the proposed legislation. It's a much uh, catchier way of talking about modern-era coal mines, those mined after 1977, that are no longer producing coal and are not being reclaimed. That 1977 date is important because that's when Congress enacted the Service Mining Control Reclamation Act, otherwise known as SMACRA. And before that time, coal companies were not required to clean up their mines. And after that law was enacted, coal companies are required to clean up their mines. But what we're finding is that they are not. The SMACRA included funding to clean up those pre-1977 mines? Yes, it uh, created a small fee on coal mining, so um, a per ton severance fee that went to the abandoned mine land fund to clean up all those pre-1977 sites. And that money was never really enough. It made kind of a, a dent in the abandoned mine land problem. So then um, last Congress, the bipartisan infrastructure law included another $11 billion to go into that fund to help clean up the, the backlog, basically, of mines. But none of that money can be used on post-1977 mines. So what can be done about that? There's a number of things that, that we're trying to do. You know, Smacker does re- require coal companies to clean up their mines and does require them to put up bonds or other financial assurances to make sure that they will have money to clean up the mines, even if they go bankrupt. The problem has been that, that there are loopholes in the laws or the state regulators or the federal regulators are not enforcing the laws or setting the bond amounts high enough. So it's you know a number of different ways that companies are, are able to get out of their responsibilities, including bankruptcy, including, you know, just lax enforcement, all those kinds of loopholes. So the things that, you know, we've been working on 
at the congressional level are ideas around ways to improve SMACRA, close the loopholes, basically. But we also recognize that even if we close all those loopholes, the coal industry is in such decline that they're not going to have enough money to clean up all, all of these mines. You know, our rough calculations put it at a multi-billion dollar problem. Coal companies continue to go bankrupt, and we expect that just to keep getting worse in the years to come. One of our ideas is a new abandoned mine land-like fee. Um, obviously, this would be a fee that would then go to pay for reclamation at the modern era mines, um, but it would function like that AML fee just so that coal companies are all paying into a new pot of money that can be accessed by the state or federal regulators when there are these cases that the company has gone bankrupt, they don't have an, enough money set aside for reclamation and the states don't have the money either. We still you know, recognize that even if that were to be enacted years down the road, we could still be in a situation where there's not enough money even in that source um, and that Congress might have to find you know, another source of funding, taxpayer money um, to go into that fund. But for now, we think you know, we're, we're trying our best to make sure that companies are paying for what they are responsible for with this platform. So what are some of the impacts of these zombie mines, these abandoned mines that really are just sitting there without even any work going on? It um, can vary a lot by region. Um, you know, here in Appalachian region, we have a lot more a lot more rain, and uh, the mines tend to be in wetter environments than out west. So I can talk a lot about, you know, what what we're seeing here. I just as an example with um, surface mining today, you know, you have kind of a, a normal mountain, and when a coal company is mining that mountain, they will basically cut cliffs into the side of the mountain. And that leaves these, you know, very sheer cliffs that erode. When they aren't mining actively and not reclaiming actively, they're leaving rock exposed. So that can result in in cliffs basically, you know, like landslides, um, crumbling of that, of those steep cliffs, especially when we see heavy rainfall, that tends to wipe out those cliffs and cause water pollution downstream. It also causes acid mine drainage because you're letting rock be exposed to water and air that creates acid mine drainage. Again, that that's a water pollution issue. This is a, an area that gets a lot of rain and flooding. When you're mining, you're taking away the vegetation and the topsoil that can absorb that rainfall. Um, you're basically changing the whole hydrology of the mountain and reclamation can help improve that by restoring the vegetation. But when the mines are just sitting there open and you get these heavy rainfalls, it makes the impacts of flooding worse. That was Chelsea Barnes, Director of Government Affairs and Strategy with the group Appalachian Voices. Learn more about the group supporting new federal legislation to address zombie coal mines by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, KSER in Everett, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.